Welcome back, everybody, to a whole new episode of the Mastering Agility podcast. This podcast aims to inspire you and others by bringing in the best of the business. I need to make a slight correction based off the previous episode. I mentioned in the intro it was the 10th episode of the third season. It's actually It was actually the 8th. So now we're heading into the ninth episode. Everyone can make a mistake, and even I. My apologies. Again, I would like to ask you guys to join the Mastering Agility Discord community where we inspire you connect to other people with the best articles, podcasts, video clips, you name it. Help people guide through the PSM3 or the PST process where people post their job offerings and jobs wanted who need some help getting a job. This community is really to help and connect and inspire others. And this is just one of the ways to do it. I would love to see you guys there. Also to help you get inspired, in this week's episode, we have Henrik Nieberg. And we're talking about how to involve, evolve culture as well as frameworks. It seems these days that everyone's looking for a silver bullet, that one size fits all approach that's going to magically solve everyone's problems. That doesn't work. What might work for my organization might not work for yours. But how do we evolve these kind of things? Henrik is here to talk to you about just that with us. And like Nieber, thank you very much for joining. Welcome thank on the you. show. It's great to be doing? here. You are in an awesome, inspirational place. You are having great. Yeah, weather. wait a second. This is a podcast. It's only voice. It's only audio, right? Okay. Yes. So you can't see. It's nice. I'm out. I'm out, out in the kind of archipelago outside Stockholm. And it's a blue sky, and it's actually sunny and warm for a change, so we're all outside. <laughs> <laughs> what does that do with the dynamics in your team? Just out of, out of curiosity. What? The, what does it do with with the dynamics to the di- dynamics in your team, um, being in such a place compared to being in an office building together? Uh, it changes the dynamics quite a lot. <laughs> but um, it makes us more creative i think and less focused on what's the next thing i have to do right now we we try to kind of clear our calendars as much as possible when we head out outside of the office and that means we have more time for spontaneous conversations which is uh, super valuable and that's indeed very valuable is this something that you learned during the pandemic or is this a culture within the company anyway uh you got cut off just for a second you repeat that is that something that you guys learned and developed during the pandemic, or is that something that has been the culture? Anyway? Um, I would say it came out of the pandemic to some extent, since everyone went home and was alone, lonely in their apartment or house for for two years, and and built up <laughs> this pent up need to, you know, be together. And now, when people are starting to get back to the office, uh, we've kind of learned that, you know, what work can happen also outside the office. We've learned how to work remote. And now, so now that's kind of part of the of the toolbox more than it maybe was in the past. Do you would you ever want to go back to? Do you think maybe that's a different, better question? Do you think we'll we'll ever get back to the office full time? Full time, I suspect not. Unless, of course, there are some business where you need to be at the office. If you're, you know, if you're running a restaurant, people come there to eat, so you need to be there. But like IT companies and similar, where you can work remote. I have a hard time imagining that people will go back to full-time. Um, but it's going to be interesting to see where it heads because, I mean, hybrid is kind of a challenge and uh, we haven't figured it out really. And I think many other companies are struggling a little bit with how do we get hybrid to work in practice. 
And maybe that's a good segue because what I feel is that we're very much, and most companies are very much looking into, all right, that's something, this, this framework, this way of working worked at that organization. Let's implement it here as well. This worked during the pandemic at organization X. And so now we got to do that as well. Let's try that. Would that be the best approach to handle these kind of things? Um, well, I, I think it's useful to be inspired by by past experiences and, of course, also from other companies, but maybe not copy-paste wholesale. <laughs> I, I kind of like the phrase copy-paste adapt. There's no need to reinvent the wheel. Your company is probably not as unique as you think. So find something similar. If, so, if a similar company is doing something that seems to work for them, then don't reinvent the wheel. Maybe get inspired by what they're doing. But don't just copy from one company. Steal the best bits from several, <laughs> and then uh, and then yeah, exactly. uh, mix it up a little bit and put your own flavor on it. Um. <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned that you're not as unique as you think, and that's that's one of the most common things that I've ever heard when 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 I enter as a consultant, um, being the agile consultant in these cases. Well, this agile thing, I don't think is really going to work here because we're, we're very much we're, different. We're, different. <laughs> we're special, yeah. Just like all of your com- competitors, yeah. just like every other organization, you're very We're much all special, special. therefore yes. we're all the same. <laughs> yes, we're very much special, and therefore we're going to try to run something that would be a one-size-fits-all approach. Although I, I, I do have a huge respect for context, though, so I haven't seen any... It's not like... I, th- I don't think companies are exactly the same, and they should all work the same way, but uh, sometimes we tend to reinvent the wheel more than we need to. <laughs> instead of looking around us yeah exactly but it's it's what what it, what makes that so hard in your experience um part of it i think is maybe this whole psychology of non-invented here syndrome like it's the same in code or any kind of design situation it's you know if you make up something yourself then you know what it is and and you've adapted it to your context hopefully if you're taking something from somewhere else, well, A, you need to be aware of that it exists in the first place, which may take some time to look around. And then you're not sure if it's going to fit. So I think, you know, typically in like working with technical frameworks, that's very like, okay, I need logging in my system. Well, there's lots of logging frameworks out there, but I'm not sure which one I should use. And our needs are quite simple. So I'll just make my own for starters. And then you end up making this really huge, complicated beast. Um so it's 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 kind of hard. Um, it, there is some value in creating your own thing for your own context, but then at some point you kind of need to notice that. Wait a sec, we're not in the business of making logging frameworks. <laughs> we, <laughs> maybe we should find a third-party one <laughs> that might not fit us 100%, but it fits us 90%, and then it saves us a lot of time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that does need, you require as an organization a little bit of that introspective. Um, character traits yeah. to be able to, to to really confidently say we don't know where we're going we just need to start and then adapt yeah. and i guess that's what what you did with spotify as well and that, uh, that's also kind of what, what i like with, what, with what, most agile frameworks although like none of them is a silver bullet of course but they're all i would say good starting points so if you don't know where to start and you're in a product development company well just grab scrum just just do it by the book and then start t- tweaking from there. It'll give you a decent starting point, for example. Um, How long, in your opinion, should organizations run in by the book? Because organizations usually start to cherry pick and this is going to work for us, this is not going to work without actually going through the motion and feeling the pain, the growing pains. And, and, and dot, and I think dot. that's a super interesting question and also really hard because, uh, yeah, it's, it's not very good if you start adapting immediately but also not good if you're stuck doing things by the book for years. So 
But I would say a little, a little bit is maybe based on experience. If you have a team that is very experienced with, with uh, an agile way of working, then there's no need for them to follow any recipe. They can you know, pick and choose practices and principles as, they, as needed for that context. But if a team is a little more junior or, or maybe unused to the agile way of working, then I would suggest do something by the book and stick with it at least for a few months, probably. Uh, but then make sure that it doesn't become a dogma. <laughs> no, exactly. Does um, is Scrum or any other framework is still a means yeah. to an end and not the end exactly. itself. Exactly, um, and that's very easy to forget along the way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because that's that's a lot of expectations that I get. We have to do Scrum. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Why? It, it's all. It's also hard. We'll I have value. a huge respect for how hard it is for people who are new to this to know what parts can I change safely. Like Scrum is a very tiny framework, right? It's in, it's not intended to be complete. There's a tons of things you have to figure out yourself. But then the question is, when do I overstep the bounds and start breaking the framework by mistake? And I guess that's where people like you and me come in as kind of coaches to help guide that. Like, you know, okay, maybe not eliminate the product owner role the first thing you do. Um, <laughs> but if you want to experiment with, you know, how often you do daily scrum or who's in the daily scrum, that's a safer thing to experiment with maybe. <laughs> what? How would you conduct such an experiment? Because I think the daily scrum is one of the most most fitting examples that we can can pull out uh, to, to start with is yeah well what do we do we, we'll we'll do our daily scrum once a week are we doing it right or wrong yeah <laughs> what would be your answer i, I like to kind of emphasize the why of every practice that we introduce and kind of be over clear about that um so why do we have daily scrums what problem is it supposed to solve because that becomes useful when experimenting because then we can ask okay daily scrum is a synchronization meeting it's to keep us from running in eight different directions so is that working for us and if we start changing things let's say people have some reason why they want to do them less often i would first want to ask why what problem do you want to solve and maybe changing daily scrum isn't the best way to solve that um, or maybe we're not sure and maybe we do want to try it so then i would kind of take the scientific method approach and say what's our hypothesis what do we think is going to happen um, and then follow up on that and say, okay, so now we do daily scrums once per week. How's it working for us? And also check in on the why. Like this meeting is supposed to keep us synchronized. How synchronized do we feel now that we do them less often? And maybe maybe we're fine or maybe we realize that, oh, maybe we should do them more often after all. <laughs> and the interesting exactly. thing is if we do end up going back, then we're still wiser. We learned something along the way. So I still think it's a good thing. The why is usually one of the toughest questions to ask. Or to, to really to, to grasp the why behind it. Uh, usually the development teams understand, or the developers or the scrum teams understand what they're doing and how they're doing it, but the, the why is a lot less tangible. Yeah. How do you make such a thing clear? I can't think of any other way than just repeating it often. <laughs> like Especially if it's, if it's a new team that I'm helping to get started with, with an Agile method. I tend to, at the beginning of every ritual, just take 20 seconds to remind them of what the purpose of that ritual is. Maybe not every day at the daily scrum that gets a bit repetitive, but but like sprint planning, retrospective. If it, if it just takes thirty seconds to remind people of why we're here, then uh, that's worth it, actually. Um, but of course, for for very experienced teams, it's not necessary. Oh. Do you ever think with your teams and the organizations that you coach on what's the desired? Uh, culture that we want to have like we're currently doing this we need to adapt let's say we have a very traditional organization what where do we want to end up how does that look like and how can we move to that 
I guess I kind of tend to automatically nudge the organization towards becoming more curious in general. Like, don't take stuff for granted. So I kind of, like, the, the organizations that I find work really well is when everyone is kind of like children, questioning things. What happens if I do this? What happens if I do that? Why are we doing this? You know, kind of ask those questions yeah. that people didn't ask in the past. And that tends to create an experimental mindset, which is uh, pretty fun, first of all, but also pretty effective because that helps us avoid, you know, getting stuck in waste. Where did we lose our childhood when it comes to our, our childish open mind when it comes to asking these kind of questions? Yeah, that's the million-dollar question, right? <laughs> what happened? That's actually a really interesting kind of philosophical question too. Um, I can just guess, but I think to some extent the school system can in some sense have a negative effect on it, depending on – of course, it varies from place to place. But in many cases, schools, it's like you take a test, there is a right answer, and everything else is the wrong answer. And you kind of learn to – to you know, study and then repeat the correct answer. Um, then that that can, I guess, over time maybe uh, you know become a negative in that sense that you lose your curiosity. But I don't know. Maybe people, uh, as you grow up, tend to become a little bit too confident. Like I'm an adult now. I've learned these things. I should know. Um, so maybe a bit of it is about um, confidence or lack of confidence. And that's what I think is interesting in, in a culture. If you can get a critical mass of people that are willing to ask the obvious questions and willing to make mistakes and willing to try ideas, then that will uh, make others dare try things as well. So it, it can be a, a positive spiral or a negative spiral, depending on how, how, it's, how it happens. Um, and I think that's, that's uh, you mentioned a very interesting thing there, the willingness to make mistakes. If I make, put in the wrong answer, then I'm going to get blamed. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the wrong thing to do. How do you get rid of such a thing? Because th this is something that I've been discussing with Lisa Atkins as well. Is, uh, the schooling system is ingrained throughout yeah. there, right? Uh, university. If you don't get the highest grades, you won't go to the yeah. next class. You won't go to the best university, blah, blah, blah. So you get very much prestigious, focused yeah. cultures. How do you move back to it's okay to fail? I'm, I'm going to be open and say, I, I messed up here. I, I think the leaders in an organization have a critical role in that. Um, if the leaders, especially the top leaders, if they don't have that mindset, I find it almost impossible to get it in the rest of the organization because they tend to squash it uh, intentionally or unintentionally. But on the, positive side, if, if, on the positive side, if you have leaders who have that mindset, then it tends to spread. Um, so that's a little bit sad because... That means that, at least in my experience, it's hard to change your organization if the leaders are very much, you know, set in the, you know, you have to be right. You can't make mistakes. You can't take risks. But it's interesting to see sometimes I've seen organizations where one of the key leaders or founder or someone like uh, leaves and someone else comes in. And sometimes things can change pretty quickly when that person has, has another mindset. But another thing that, of course, helps is just like if you repeat something often enough, it starts becoming a habit and that's what i really like about iterative methods like scrum because you don't have to really explain to people why it's important to experiment if you just do a few sprints and experience the feeling of of shipping something and getting feedback and adapting to that feedback or going to a retrospective talking about what worked well what didn't changing something and then following up two weeks later how did that work 
maybe we should try something different. If if you do that enough, it almost builds up a new kind of muscle memory of like, oh, you know what? We tried some things the past few months, and some of them didn't work out, and we changed them, and now things are a lot better. And hey, no one got punished for it, and this is working quite well. And like, if you do that enough, then it 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 tends to spread. Do you think punishment and punishment in the working environment um, is still ingrained coming out of the industri- industrial revolution, for instance? Uh, that's a good question. I'm not so sure. I guess it maybe depends on the people in the company. Um, like most people haven't experienced the industrial revolution in their life. So, so right, unless you're really old. Um, so what you're seeing is remnants of it, right? The nine to five things and, you know, going to an office and time reports and like if efficiency focus those, those, these are remnants of it that are kind of sit in some of our rituals and habits um, so but uh, sorry what was the original question <laughs> I lost it <laughs> whether you think there's that, that punishment oh, yeah. the, the punishment driven behavior let's let's call it PDD yeah. pain driven development <laughs> um, I think it's super super damaging like in those in those situations where people get punished for almost whatever reason it tends to drive people to to safety, to picking the the path of least uh, exposure and risk, and that basically kills any kind of innovation. So that that's really really hard. Um, indirect punishment, <laughs> if I if I call it that, I think could work in the sense that if we as a team ship something that our users hate, and we ship it early, so we find out early that they hate it, it is a kind of punishment to get feedback that the users don't like what I shipped. But it's a good kind of punishment because there's something I can do about it. You know, I can listen to that and improve it, and then it'll be better. But the arbitrary punishment of like, oh no, you shipped this thing late. Oh, but I didn't make up this date or make up this plan. Yet I'm being punished for being late, right? Um, or uh, you know, I tried something and it didn't work out, and therefore I'm being punished. That news tends to spread fast, and that just puts a big. It just dampens all innovation. And honestly, I've had a few cases where I've been at companies seen that happen and basically given up and left because I don't know what to do when, when the leaders have that type of culture no exactly but how do you yourself display yourself in such a leadership role I mean you've grown a large audience you've become a celebrity in the agile field I can imagine that organizations have high expectations of you as well um, but Spotify for instance is very much different than the team and the crew now creating Minecraft that you're working with how do you leverage such a thing? That's actually really interesting because to some extent, um, part of what I think I've gotten known for is an experimental mindset. So when people bring me in as a coach, that normally means that they are interested in trying stuff. Um, so so in, in that sense, I, I think it's fine. What's scary a little bit sometimes is that if someone has like read my books or seen a talk or something and it Everything can sound so polished and simple and clear in a talk. But reality isn't like that, right? So then I come in and and then I don't have all the answers. I just mostly have questions and experiments. Um, What can sometimes happen is people take me, they, 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 they trust me too much. If I suggest something, I say, hey, maybe we could try this thing. Then they sometimes treat that as gospel. But it's not. It's an idea and it may or may not work. Um. That that's mostly a risk in short-term engagements. If I come into a company for just one day, and maybe it's they've been trying to get me to come in for a long time, so then they have these super high expectations, and then they believe that everything I say is somehow true. But I'm mostly just throwing out ideas and trying stuff. <laughs> so th- that can be a little bit scary. 
but with companies that have been at for a long time, like Mojang now or, or Spotify, like that wears off pretty quickly. Like within a month, people get used to that. I'm just a guy on the team trying to help. And then that kind of, you know, uh, public speaker thing wears off pretty quickly. And that feels pretty good um, because then I can be more daring and I can speak out with crazy ideas without being worried that people are going to believe that they'll automatically work. <laughs> that gospel thing, is that something that happened to Spotify as well with the quote unquote, the Spotify model where even though explicitly mentioned, this is what works with Spotify. It might, may not work for you. Therefore do not call it a model. Is that something that happened there? As uh, it, well? it, like, it, did, it, it didn't happen internally. It never, it never became gospel internally. That's why people internally laughed a lot when they saw what happened to the world when I put out these videos. They're like, "What? What?" People <laughs> literally came and asked me, "Henrik, I heard about something called a Spotify model. What's that?" And I'm like, "That's the thing people are calling the video that I put out." Oh, whoa! <laughs> it became this. I see it. <laughs> like, so people were, were very surprised, especially when seeing everyone's misinterpretations of it because it was just a video and a case study. Um, so I'm I'm glad to see that it never became gospel inside, um, but it did become gospel to some extent outside and uh, I'm just mostly f- kind of fascinated I felt kind of like sitting in the audience with popcorn watching what happens when you when I release this case study um, but it was also kind of inspiring because I know that there's there's been some negativity when you know people just copy a model it's same thing happened when I wrote my first book Scrum and XP from the trenches people took that to some extent as a model and started copying it and and then with Spotify it was the same thing again but what I noticed when visiting companies that are saying that they're using the Spotify model, what they're actually doing is copy-paste adapt. Uh, they, they took this thing, they got inspired by it, they, they used the same words, squads and tribes, etc. And they use it differently. And some people might, you know, scorn at that and say, ha ha ha, idiots, you misunderstood, you know, you're doing it wrong. But no, they're they're adapting it, which is what which is what, what they should. So it doesn't matter that their concept of a squad is different from Spotify. In fact, that's actually good. So, so mostly, uh, I'm pretty positive to it in the sense that, uh, yeah, it wasn't intended to be a model, but I've seen a lot of companies take this model as the trigger that caused them to start questioning how they work. And they rarely end up in a worse place than they were before. It seems like the worst cases I've seen were companies that didn't go anywhere. They took the model, renamed all the roles and teams, and then kept doing what they've always been doing. But that's not so bad. They didn't end up in a worse place. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, overall, I, I, I don't. I, I think it's pretty, pretty fine. Um, learn from others, get inspired, copy, paste, adapt. There are a million things I want to continue on. Uh, but how do you make? How do you ensure that not sticking to just a model, but moving forward from accompanying behavior as well? Like let's let's stick. I don't want to stick too much with the Spotify model, but let's say an organization approaches it like this. This is the model that we're going to go for, even though um, they have to adapt. How do they ensure that they switch the behavior and the mindset accompanying to make it successful? Well, in many cases, they don't. <laughs> like, <laughs> unfortunately, in many companies, uh, like organizational change is seen as uh, an event, something you do, and then you're done with it. So it's like, okay, we're going to now change our organization. So then you have all these meetings and workshops and stuff, and maybe you take a model like Spotify or something else, and you're like, now we're going to do this, and it becomes a change program, and then it ends. And then it's like, now we're done. And uh, typically, maybe they ended up in somewhat better place than before, and then they kind of stop, which is uh, a bit unfortunate. So that sometimes happens. 
but in other cases, what I see is when they start applying, you know, an agile framework of any sort, because the practices in these frameworks are all about iterating and experimenting and adapting to change, then that sometimes nudges the culture into being more accepting of change, um, which is which is really cool. So yeah, I see the whole the whole scale of the whole scale from nothing really changed to everything changed, <laughs> and sometimes. The, the saddest case I find is when companies really, really, you know, adopt a, an agile mindset and start really improving things and changing things. Um, and then a new manager comes in after two years. And the manager is used to a waterfall approach. And, what, and, and they're used to being in control of things with clear roadmaps and clear accountability. And, you know, they know who to blame when things go to fail and et cetera. And then they come into this agile organization. They're like, "This is so confusing. We got all these teams, and I don't know what they're doing. And things keep changing. And and God forbid, they're talking directly to the customers and then acting on their feedback. So I'm not in control anymore. And it's ah, oh, no. and it's scary. So then they kind of just put a brake on it and say, "No, we need more structure here. We need specifications and you know fixed roles. And and then it basically all 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 reverts back, which is uh, really sad. How do you guys handle that with Mojang? Because it's a huge platform, millions and millions of stakeholders. Uh, I can imagine if you screw up one experiment and has a detrimental effect on, on Minecraft itself, it's going to bite you in the ass when it comes to exposure. Yeah, I think Mojang is really interesting because it's a bit of a unicorn in that sense because most companies I've seen that start kind of as a small, like small startups tend to be agile by nature because you have to be or else you don't survive as a startup. But then as they grow and especially if they become successful super successful then there are all these pressures to 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 kind of start regulating everything and not take risks anymore because we're safe now we have you know we we're we're we're, we're the big kid on the block right um but i think it's cool that despite microsoft buying mojang um two two very very different cultures two different organizations but there's still in the teams this very strong sense of agility this very strong sense of we ship every week to our users get feedback and act on that feedback um, so that's that's really great uh, there, are, there are probably other companies as well that grow big and manage to keep that but it seems fairly rare so I'm really glad that uh, so far we managed to keep that with Minecraft um, I think part of it is also that that it, we've been doing this for like 11 years with, with Minecraft has worked this way with you know frequent iterations and always adapting to feedback so it's become ingrained in the culture it's considered like the obvious thing to do you 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 try things you get feedback and, and you change what we're trying to do is take it one step further because although we do experiment a lot with our features we have li- not very often put a, put a feature out to users and then taken taken it away again once we put a feature, you know, make it visible to our users, we iterate on the details of how it works. But the feature itself usually stays. So lately we started experimenting with actually putting some experimental features out and then actually taking them away and saying, thanks for your feedback, we decided to not include this. And just to kind of train our users and ourselves that it's okay to do that because then we can raise the innovation level one more step, hopefully. How do you ensure innovation? How do you make sure that happens? It's it's really easy to do the same trick over and over and, and kind of stay shy away from that, that intangible and the unknown. Yeah. Uh, but how do you ensure that innovation continues to happen? I, again, I guess leadership comes into play because innovation is a strategy, right? And and you need to budget for it. And it, and it does involve some risk. Um, and if the leaders aren't on board with that, then it's going to tend to not happen. But I would say 
so there's no way to ensure it really, but there is a way to there is ways to support it. Um, and I, I think to some extent the agile methods do that automatically if you apply it kind of as intended, because again you're, we're iterating, we're, we're trying things, we're getting feedback, and we're changing stuff based on the feedback, which is kind of what innovation is about. Um, but it's it's hard because doing real innovation requires you to build stuff that you don't know if they're going to succeed at all. Um, and that means you kind of need to count on having some failed projects. And if if that doesn't feel comfortable to you, then that's going to limit your ability to innovate. <laughs> uh, that's that's very much how you approach that as well. I mean, if you define how you define success, I guess if learning is a definition of success as well, then you've learned something. It didn't work the way that you wanted or hoped yeah. that, that it would work, but you still learned something. Therefore, you could yeah, and, and, and you can also whatever. work on reducing the cost of failure. So we can say that we expect certain percent of our products to fail, but let's try to make them fail as fast and cheaply as possible. Um, and that's where things come in, like okay, we're going to actually sh- we're going to ship prototypes to our end users. It's it's cheap to make prototypes, um, and then we're going to learn from that, and maybe we can shut down the project early if the, if it if it didn't show promise. But that's kind of hard too, because many companies, especially when they get famous, they only want to ship things that are all polished up and you know finished. <laughs> so to show your dirty laundry and your crazy half baked ideas. That takes courage, but if you do that, then you can fail fast on stuff, which is which is fantastic. Um, do you still play Minecraft yourself? Uh, yes, I do, <laughs> but in periods. Um, in fact, most of my teammates are, are kind of the same. We play in periods, so there could be a few months of not playing it at all, other than of course, you know, playtesting our work. But but actually playing for fun with our friends, there could be periods of not doing it at all, and then some periods where we play all the time with each other or, or with friends. So it, it varies a lot, um, and that's quite typical of Minecraft itself as a game like what's interesting about the game is it's a, it's a pretty special game in the sense that most other games people start playing it and they're really into it and then they stop and never come back but Minecraft is the kind of game where like people never stop playing really they stop playing temporarily and then they tend to come back later so the way we play Minecraft is quite similar to I guess most of our player base as well what makes that so what's the magic of Minecraft there's been a lot of people kind of trying to define that. <laughs> All we have is theories. But I think there's a number of things that, that interplay. Um, one is the simplicity in it, in that uh, um, it's not a very polished game. When you come in, it's pretty, it's pixelated. You know, a lot of stuff in Minecraft is kind of ugly. You, if you walk into a village, it's, it, it's, it's <laughs> pre- compared to other games that are really super polished, this looks very simple. But that invites players to uh, build things on, on themselves. They don't feel intimidated by, man, this castle is amazing. I can't build anything like it. Instead, they walk into a village and see a very simple house and like, hmm, I'm going to improve this house or make something myself. So there's that. And also the fact that it's not targeted at any specific type of audience. So it is kind of a sandbox. So almost any kind of player will find something for them in Minecraft. Some people like going on adventures, you know, um, finding treasures, fighting monsters. Well, Minecraft has that. But if you prefer to just sit, you know, and, and tinker with your with your house or to build some amazing artwork or build some crazy machine, um, the sandbox allows those very different play styles. So that allows different age groups, different cultures, plus people who stop playing tend to come back later on and maybe they play in a different way. Um, it almost feels like the you can almost check box 
or check all the boxes by uh, by Daniel Pink. So yes, you can, you can completely outlive your autonomy, mastering yeah, purpose. Definitely on all the aspects. Definitely, and I think also the way we work has been helpful. That we ship every week a snapshot, so we get feedback every week on the work we're doing, which means that by the time we do our actual releases, which are about once or twice per year, we've had so much feedback and so many chances to iterate along the way. So it's almost guaranteed to be you know successful because we've already tested it so much. Uh, so that means that every, you know, once or twice per year, we, we make some improvement to the game that, that people generally like, and then they make a fuss about it. They make videos, and it generates lots of, you know, buzz and hype. And that keeps the game relevant. People come back to it because maybe they maybe someone hasn't played for, for a year or two. They happen to see a video on YouTube where someone is talking about the new features, and then they're like, oh, cool. There's now mangrove swamps and frogs. I'm curious about that. And they come back in, and they're like, hey, I remember this game, you know, they start feeling nostalgia and they call their brother and say, hey, you know, let's play Minecraft again. Yeah. And then it kind of keeps coming back. Is that something that uh, has a lot to do with the graphics as well, keeping that nostalgia? Because it's very simplistic. For instance, I'm an an avid Halo player or Call of Duty. If I now go back to the first Xbox, it's very much different. I know the the first Halo, nostalgia 101. I would play that until the end of the day. But you'll see the difference in, um, in, in, in graphics. And for instance, now they're working on the new Call of yeah. Duty. They could never stick to the same old yeah. graphics from the, the first or the second Call of Duty. We, we have done some overhauls. The graphics, like a few years ago, um, we hired a person who kind of a pixel artist who just changed all the textures. Because in the beginning, it was all programmer art. <laughs> and just made it a little more you know pleasing to the eye. <laughs> so, but it's still the same pixel size it's still pixelated but there are options i mean like sometimes uh like i use shaders you can just download shaders uh and it changes it and makes it you know photorealistic almost still blocks right but beautiful like you get reflections from the water you get like it's just beautiful Uh, and then i'm kind of like oh and it feels so great but what's interesting is i've noticed that sometimes when i play and i forget to turn on the shader maybe i'm on, on another computer I don't realize it until later that I forgot to turn it on and I was having just as much fun. <laughs> so it's kind of like the first 10 minutes are like, wow! But then after that, it's like, I'm just playing Minecraft and the graphics don't matter that much, actually. <laughs> Coming back to a little bit of culture, um, I think one of the most important aspects that we kind of intangibly already covered is the psychological safety. Yeah. Ensuring that you're, you're comfortable and then knowing that you're okay to, to fail and it's okay to completely be yourself regardless of any repercussions or what whatsoever is that something that you actively discuss and engage yes, with yes very much actually and i've noticed in several companies that i work with it's become something that people talk about which they didn't in the past i'm not sure what triggered it um but i'm really glad that it's happening <laughs> yeah and also as part of it also the acknowledgement that people are different and that a lot of agile practices cater to extroverts and there's been an increase, increasing understanding of that a lot of people aren't extroverts, especially in the IT field, and that some practices need to be adapted to make sure their voices are heard as well. What do you define as, as psychological safety? Is it something that's universal, or is that something that that's very much been, uh, fitting to Spotify or psychological safety when it comes to Mojang? Or is there a universal way of discussing psychological safety? Probably not, because as all terms that get popular, then everyone has their interpretation of it. <laughs> I mean, there are people who teach courses on psychological safety and spend days on it. 
So, uh, but in my mind, what, what I what I put into it is really the a culture where it's okay to, to speak your mind without being punished for it. Um, I think is probably if I had to boil it down to one thing, it would probably be that. What about leadership? Do do you work and engage with them on psychological safety as well? Because I, I personally, I feel that we're kind of now outgrowing the whole one size fits all approach a little bit on on when it comes to Scrum. Their their organizations are evolving. The next yeah. step is psychological safety. There's more awareness, um, but it still is being treated like Scrum. You guys do your Scrum thing. You guys do your psychological safety thing, and then we'll continue to to do whatever. We do in our ivory tower. Yeah. What? What? what How do they? Yeah. Yeah. No, um, yeah. I, I the discussions I'm seeing on psychological safety is pretty decoupled from Scrum. It, it's a it's a general thing, and it's definitely at a leadership level. And I think and I think that's really good. That's what needed to happen. Um, a few years ago, it was more like you said. It was more like, oh yeah, that's inside the Scrum team. But you don't have psychological safety only inside your Scrum team. It needs to be wider than that because Scrum is all about transparency, right? <laughs> so if, if teams yeah. are safe feel safe to speak to each other that's not enough because there's a daily scrum and there's a sprint review and there's other people listening in so it needs to be um, really thought about uh, higher up in the leadership level but also for the leaders themselves they need to feel safe to make mistakes um, and say things I think that's one of the most powerful things that the leaders could do is to be open about things that either they mess yeah. up or they don't know or they're they're very much uncomfortable um, I think that's very powerful. But do you make, for instance, I'm not going to say a definition of done on psychological safety, but just talking about it makes it so implicit. Do you create something that's more tangible? Um, let me get back to that in a moment because I just wanted to mention one thing that I that came to mind when you talked about the leadership thing. I just I just remember well, that one of the things that impressed me at Spotify was exactly that. that the leaders there, especially the CEO, he he had a habit of getting up on stage in town halls and talking about hypotheses. We think this is what we need to do as a company, but we're not sure. So let's try and find out. Or we 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 thought we should do this, so we did that, and it didn't work. So now we're going to try this instead. And this is what we learned. And he didn't make a big deal of it. It was just his habit of communicating in that way. And I think that indirectly influenced everything in the company. That's really powerful. Did it influence you as well? I, th I think so, yeah, because that made me feel a little more secure as a coach, um, seeing that you know the CEO is is open to making mistakes and trying things. Plus, it made people more inclined to listen to me when I would suggest trying things and making mistakes <laughs> instead of saying, yeah, Henrik, that sounds good, but you know what's going to happen if I make a mistake? <laughs> but yeah, you were asking is about there, implicit. I didn't quite understand the question. Maybe if you could repeat it. More explicit. Well, if we talk about psychological safety, it's it's not that tangible, you know. If you have a definition of done and, and it's somewhere listed on Confluence or on the right. wall. How do we know if we have it? You like... can basically, yeah, exactly. Like, what is that? What do we define as, a, for instance, it's a, the same vague term as self-management yeah. or value. Or... Yeah, that's actually a really good question. I, I have no idea. I, I agree. I think we probably need something like that because it is a bit wishy-washy, the whole phrase. It's like, okay. What if what if the leaders come and say we now have psychological safety we're done how how would we know yeah right <laughs> so the, the the only thing I can think of now is surveys you know good old boring employee surveys but that could be a starting point just asking to what extent do you feel comfortable speaking your mind on things um, if nothing else it could be a baseline to see if we're noticing any improvement 
Have you ever been a victim of an organization, or not necessarily an organization, but a culture where you were on the receiving end of the repercussions? And how did it affect you? Uh, yes, I have. And it was horrible. <laughs> That's all I can say. Um, it hasn't happened very often. But it did happen once that I that I can't get into too much detail without um, exposing people. But uh, yes, I, I got a taste of what it can feel like. And it was really, really deeply horrifying. Basically, the feeling of, okay. you know, I'm trying to do the best for the organization and not being punished for it. And it made me, in that context, want to be quiet. But it was a useful experience because then I understand more, you know, how what, what it can do to people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, 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 there was the, That's something I was thinking about. Is it not necessarily recommended, but do people need to feel in order to understand? I, I think a starting point is just talking about it. Um, I, I could take a related example. Imposter syndrome is something that came up during my time at Spotify. And it was interesting because it turned out that Spotify was this kind of you know, hot startup that attracted a lot of very smart people who were kind of well-known within their different fields. So what happened was, without anybody really realizing it, almost everybody was feeling imposter syndrome. Like, people going to Spotify felt like, oh my God, this person is working here. He's the one who invented this framework that I'm using. And that person wrote that book. And uh, all these people that, that are like gurus to me, and now I'm, now I'm a colleague with them. And how am I going to live up to this? So then they feel really freaked out that they're going to be exposed as an imposter at, at any moment. <laughs> but well, the funny thing is, one day, someone in one of the teams started talking about it and just kind of admitted to feeling imposter syndrome. And immediately, everyone else was like, what? You're feeling that too? I thought it was just me. <laughs> and, then, and then everyone, even these gurus, like were admitting that, holy shit, I really felt this. And it was like this very uh, funny situation where people started talking about it. And then we noticed how it really became a vicious cycle because you can have a team where, you know, let's say I'm feeling this kind of imposter syndrome and I'm like, oh my God, these other people are so smart. So uh, I'm going to work a little bit on Saturday to finish this thing because otherwise I feel like I'm not that as good as everyone else. I'm going to work a bit extra on Saturday. And then I come in on Monday and I show this cool thing that I made. And maybe I even lie about it and I don't say that I worked on Saturday because, you know, I want to make it seem like I did this during my normal work hours, right? So I show this cool thing I did and everyone's really <laughs> impressed. And guess what? Now they feel imposter syndrome. They're like, oh my God, this guy, Jim, just did this really cool thing, just like with his left hand. How am I going to live up to this? So then they start sneak working on Friday evenings or something, and it becomes this vicious cycle of everyone trying to just live up to their expectation of how they should be. But just talking about it helped a lot, because then we could call each other out on it and laugh about it, and it became easier. So yeah, talk about things is is a good starting starting point. (laughs) If you don't do that, you'll head, head into burnout yes. charts rather than burnout yes, charts. Yes, definitely. It's, and I, I suspect it's, the psychological it's, safety thing is a little bit the same thing. When you start talking about it, even just talking about it is a good starting point. Well, yeah. Um, understanding or and feeling confident that it's okay to, to speak yeah. up about that. Uh, you shouldn't fear the repercussions. Um, so to anyone listening... We're challenging you to speak up about that as well. Yes. Talk about psychological safety. Talk about how you feel. Talk about imposter yeah, syndrome. Yeah, and talk about stress and burnout. Um, it's such a big hidden problem. But if you're feeling something uh, like stress, burnout, psychological unsafety, or imposter syndrome, you're very likely not alone. 
there's probably others around oh, you. Oh, exactly. Um, and as long as it's hidden, it just makes things worse. So, uh, if possible, it's a bit of a meta problem because it needs psychological safety to be able to bring up these kind of things. But, but, but you know, start with someone you trust near near you, and and yeah, you know, you, it might spread. You got to break the pattern yeah. somewhere. And it's very it's it's a and huge it's relief when everyone okay. starts you know open opening up on these things. Yeah, exactly, and it, it's going to be a snowball effect. Uh, people will look up at you, yeah. and it's going to it's going to spiral, and, and people will stick to you. Uh, and there's absolutely no shame in admitting, "Hey, I need help yeah. here. Uh, I'm overflown. Uh, flooded with yeah. work, even though I pulled it in myself because I went to impress and the imposter yeah. syndrome." Now, almost the last question: What would be your recommendation? In, in or for organizations that are starting off with this development that are looking for a framework that fits them uh, or how they want to evolve their culture to something that that fits for them specifically where to start how to evolve um i guess it depends very much on what they do but i would l- probably look at what are the most common frameworks within this industry or area that people use and what are some well-known companies that seem to be doing well and just do a bit of research, you know, read up on some of these frameworks, maybe visit some of those companies or read case studies or watch a few talks and kind of go on a data gathering spree with your team. And and uh, it could be, you know, basically put pieces of inspiration on sticky notes on the table, right? And look at it and say, okay, here's a bunch of yeah. ideas. Um, which ones are we excited about? Which ones do we feel that this definitely fits us? Which ones do we feel might fit us and are worth trying? And which ones are we going to skip? even if everyone else is doing it. And then most importantly, you know, do, do, do retrospectives, find out, like talk, go back and look at it and say, okay, how are we doing? And maybe even before doing that, put put down a vision. How What do we want to be like as a company? Like both in terms of, our, of course, our business plan, like what do we want to achieve, but also what do we want it to be like to work here? Like if someone describes to their friend what it's like to work at this company, what words should come out of their mouth? And write those down and, th- and then use that as kind of a, a basis for for determining how you're doing. Um. Also, going back to a little bit earlier in this conversation, do not skip the retrospectives. Yeah. Like, don't don't evolve from that point. Don't don't cherry pick to to move that out. Um, too often, I get the question during the, the Scrum the Door courses I teach: Can we just leave out the retrospective? Well, yeah, you could, but it's probably you'll you'll probably set yourself up. Yeah, for it's probably the last thing I would remove. See what you can prove. Um. There's lots of ways you can change rituals. You can change how often you do them or who's involved or, you know, there's all stuff, all kinds of stuff you can do, but just eliminating them entirely, I think is really just putting your head in the sand. Um, <laughs> and there's a, there's a, uh, there's a, the irony there, the, the catch 22 is that the, the more inclined, if you're too stressed to have retros, that's probably when you need them the most, right? <laughs> yeah. One of my colleagues said, mentioned that earlier. Um, she said, it's, it's a good thing to meditate. Every day, at least. If you're feeling you're very much yeah. stressed, you don't have the time, you're having a, a very busy agenda, then you got to yeah. do more. But I guess also, also Less, another thing is that sometimes retros suck. But most cases, it's not because you don't need retros. It's because the way you're doing them isn't good. So try to distinguish those two things from like, oh, retros aren't good versus we're not doing retros very well. Most likely, you're just not doing them very well, and that just means keep experimenting. Try different ways, bring in a coach or something, right? If people are looking for a coach, Henrik and I are both 
uh, coaches you can hire us <laughs> speaking of that where can people find you uh, they the can find question. me on uh, LinkedIn and on Twitter um, I also have on the Crisp website if you just google my name it'll you'll, you'll find my, my page on crisp.se and there I have some contact info as well um, and an FAQ for stuff to that's what I like people to read before they reach out but <laughs> <laughs> with mixed results yeah remember whether if I read the FAQ before <laughs> I reached out I don't remember. <laughs> but if you didn't, you're forgiven. There's a there's a comment in the chat by Bart, one of our audience. Henrik is my agile hero when he waves at you. <laughs> Way back. <laughs> but, Henrik, there, thank you very much for being here. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Oh, this is su super fun. <laughs> Have a nice day. You too. I really enjoyed this episode. Henrik is one of my favorite people out there when it comes to Agile, to his mindset, to the way that he has made an impact on the community and the wider delivery of the Agile mindset. Again, I would love to see you guys over at the Mastering Agility Discord community, where we connect people, inspire people, help them on their jobs, um, help them becoming a professional scrum trainer as well, share the best articles, we guide people and we connect people to each other one of my favorite things to do. I would love to see you guys there. Else, thank you very much for joining this episode. I'll see you again next time.